Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. This election cycle is like no other in modern American history. The COVID-19 pandemic is tossing traditional campaigning by the wayside and is driving record numbers of Americans to vote by mail in lieu of casting a ballot at a polling place. Despite these challenges, Minnesota recently held a primary election. Joe Biden officially accepted the nomination as the Democratic Party's presidential candidate. And Senator Kamala Harris was named Biden's running mate. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson joins us to discuss this most unusual campaign season. Professor Pearson, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. Great to be with you. Let's start with Joe Biden's vice presidential pick, Senator Kamala Harris. What do you think are the main reasons why Biden and his team chose Harris? Biden made it clear uh, early on that his plan was to pick a excellent woman as his running mate. And then after George Floyd's killing, after protests around the country, uh, it seemed increasingly clear that he would choose a woman of color. Uh, And indeed, there were many qualified women of color to choose from. But Harris is clearly prepared to be vice president and prepared to be president. She herself uh, ran for the presidency. She dropped out um, relatively early on, but she initially generated a lot of enthusiasm. She distinguished herself as California's attorney general and a U.S. senator. And so in choosing Harris, he chose someone who was prepared to be president if necessary. He also chose someone who speaks to a lot of factions within the Democratic Party base. Now, there are some in the Democratic Party who have suggested that she is not liberal enough um, and complain uh, about her record on criminal justice. But for the most part, this is a a choice that is broadly appealing to the Democratic Party coalition. Um, Someone who does have uh, credentials on law and order issues, someone who uh, many Americans know her from her questioning of uh, Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so she's Someone that is broadly appealing, even if she wasn't everyone's first choice. Before she dropped out of the presidential race, in fact, um, other than Biden, she had the second highest number of endorsements for a time. So, so she's broadly appealing. Um, so she is viewed as someone who is, uh, you know, definitely prepared and then also generates excitement among many Democrats, although certainly not all. There were several other Black women said to be on Biden's shortlist leading up to his final pick. Former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, Representative Val Demings, Representative Karen Bass, and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. These women did not have the same national profile as Harris, but do you think being on this list will help propel their political careers? Yes, I do. I I think um, with the possible exception of Susan Rice, who's not necessarily looking for a political career, um, national security advisor under President Obama, I could see her in the administration as an appointee, um, someone who is close to Biden. But uh, for all the electeds uh, or former candidates that you've mentioned, yes, I think this has elevated their national profile um, and will help their careers going forward. I think the vetting process, you know, suggested some potential weaknesses for some at the national level, but nonetheless, sort of in general, I think that the process was very helpful to the women who were considered. 
Do you think Biden's list and his pick of Harris will help other women and women of color in down-ballot races? Do you think this will help further break down some of the barriers that have prevented women and women of color from winning seats? Yes, I do. Um, We may see it in this election. We may not see it uh, for several elections to come. There is political science research that shows that young women, adolescent women, when they are observing a woman congressional candidate, they are actually more likely to follow politics and be interested in politics. And so, um, you know, the research has not been done yet, but I could very easily see a scenario where um, Kamala Harris sort of inspires more interest among among Black girls, uh, Black adolescents, and that has some effects later. I could also see some additional enthusiasm in this cycle as well. Senator Bernie Sanders picked up the second most delegates and was ahead of Biden at the start of the campaign. Sanders supporters and the progressive wing of the party hoped for a candidate that leaned well to the left of Biden. Are they disappointed with the choice of Kamala Harris? What is Harris's voting record in the Senate, for example, and is she largely considered to be a moderate? That's an interesting question, and we're seeing different answers sort of play out in different narratives. So if you look back to her record as a prosecutor and then California Attorney General, there are some liberals um, who believe that she is not liberal enough when it comes to criminal justice issues. But then if you look at her voting record in the Senate um, across a whole range of domestic policy issues, she is uh, to the left of uh, sort of the average Democrat in the Senate. In fact, she's one of the more liberal members overall in the Senate if you look at her voting record. And so the president and vice president will work as a team, and she does seem to be more liberal than former Vice President Biden. But nonetheless, I think I think she is sort of within the Democratic Party, uh, still fairly moderate. Let's talk about Harris's Senate career. Is she regarded as an effective leader in the Senate? She is. Um, She is. I think both in her role on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which gained national attention um, during the the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, um, but then also on a host of other issues as well. She's viewed as someone who is active, a leader, um, and she hasn't had that long of a Senate career, but someone well-known and well-respected by her colleagues. The Black Lives Matter protests have radically changed many Americans' views on the criminal justice system. Will Harris's time as a prosecutor be a hurdle for the Biden team to overcome, given that trend? Among some groups, yes. Um, But I think that the choices on criminal justice issues in the election of 2020 overall are so different. Uh, Looking at, you know, President Trump and, and Vice President Pence compared to Biden and Harris, that the differences between the two major parties are so much greater than the differences uh, within the Democratic Party. I think that Harris will go a long way to reassure some of those who are concerned about her past record. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, when she and her uh, proponents point out, you know, the, the large differences between the Biden team and the Trump team, I think that that will be really quite decisive. We're talking with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson about the 2020 political campaigns. Walter Mondale picked Geraldine Ferraro as his running mate during the 1984 presidential campaign, and John McCain picked Sarah Palin for VP on his 2008 presidential run. Neither ticket won. 
Is there any evidence that the choice of a woman for a running mate hurt these campaigns? There really is not evidence that the choice of a woman hurt these campaigns. There's certainly evidence of uh, gender dynamics at play, negative gender stereotypes, sort of even misogyny toward the campaigns because of this. But there's really not a lot of evidence that the choice of women, per se, hurt the candidates. There were many reasons that John McCain was defeated by Barack Obama in 2008. I would put the economy at the top of that list. Um, Nonetheless, McCain's choice of Palin did not help him. Um, And many political scientists have shown empirically that it actually did hurt him. But it's really difficult to say if it was because um, of her gender or because she made many, many gaffes on the campaign trail. She was not particularly well vetted. Um, Sort of accounts of the process after have have shown that. Um, And I think if she had been vetted, she perhaps would not have been chosen. Um, She really was not prepared in the way that Harris is prepared uh, to be the vice presidential running mate. What role did sexism play in how Ferraro and Palin were covered in the media, and how did voters view their candidacies? Well, there's no doubt that that sexism is at work uh, when the media cover and when campaigns cover and when voters view women candidates. I think it's arguably much better today than it was in 1984, but it still persists. There are still many more questions about family and, you know, are the women up for the job and, and questions about their experience. Now, in some cases, these questions are legitimate, but in many cases, um, you know, women have to overcome many more hurdles to be taken as seriously as men. And so I think Walter Mondale had an uphill battle to begin with, and so it's really hard to say to what extent Ferraro's choice hurt him or even perhaps helped him when it comes to enthusiasm within the Democratic Party. Because certainly uh, women and uh, feminists played a big part in the Democratic Party in the 1980s. And so to some extent, it did increase enthusiasm, but it was an uphill battle running against a popular incumbent. Do you think sexism will be a factor for Harris to overcome? I think to some extent, sexism and racism will be a factor for her to overcome, but her gender and race also bring benefits to the ticket. And so I think it really depends which voters we're talking about. I think um, Black women who are a loyal constituency of the Democratic Party are very excited to see sort of descriptive representation in action um, with the selection of the first Black woman as a vice presidential candidate. And so I think it's a little bit too soon to tell, but I think the increase in enthusiasm uh, may very well counteract some of the sexism on the part of other voters. But this will be a question well studied by political scientists with many different research methods in this election. So uh, I'll get back to you on that in a year. (laughs) (laughs) How has President Trump's campaign responded to Biden's VP choice? Well, as the president is wont to do with some insults um, on Twitter. But I think probably with, and I don't know this, but probably with a lot of behind the scenes preparation for that October vice presidential debate. Um, but there are some signs that Republicans are are not quite clear what the narrative is. I mean, we've seen a lot of attacks from Republicans, not just President Trump, but, you know, she's extremely liberal. She's extremely liberal, which is interesting considering that one of her hurdles among Democrats is proving her liberal credentials when it comes to criminal justice. Senator Amy Klobuchar endorsed Biden after she dropped out of the presidential race and for a time was on the list of potential running mates. 
Why was Klobuchar dropped from the consideration, and do you think she could potentially have a role in Biden's cabinet if he wins in November? I'll start with saying that I think that Senator Klobuchar was so seriously considered early on because presidential candidates typically look for partners in governing. And it seems that uh, Biden and Klobuchar have a good relationship. Um, He was appreciative of her support. Um, It was critical in Minnesota um, on Super Tuesday. And so it seemed that they have a good relationship. They would form a good partnership and their moderate views on many, not all, but on many issues are aligned. Um, But after George Floyd's killing and the criticism about the Myron Burrell case uh, with Klobuchar and also Chauvin, it it seemed that it would just be too complicated um, for a variety of reasons to have Klobuchar in the mix. And then along with that, it also became clear that Biden was very interested in choosing a woman of color and that there are many women of color to choose from. We're talking with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science, Catherine Pearson, about the 2020 political campaigns. Let's discuss the recent primary results in Minnesota. One of the closely watched races was in the 5th Congressional District. Incumbent Ilhan Omar faced a well-funded challenger, Antone Melton-Mukes. What were the main issues voters focused on, and how did campaign money impact this race? Well, this was an interesting race. Um, And I want to start by saying it is unusual for incumbents to be challenged in primaries. We've heard about that more frequently in recent elections, but it nonetheless is still unusual. And when it happens, it's even more unusual for an incumbent to be defeated. Historically, incumbents are most likely to be defeated in primaries if they have a scandal attached to them. Again, some of the more noteworthy defeats are those that are for ideological reasons, but but it's most common to have an incumbent defeated in a primary because of scandal. Um, And Mukes was running mainly on a combination of scandal, um, but then also in criticizing Representative Omar's attention to national politics, he argued, at the expense of Congressional District 5. And so on the one hand, um, she won more than 10 points more in this primary than she did two years ago. But on the other hand, um, Mukes received nearly 40% of the vote. And in a heavily Democratic district with a well-known incumbent, that does say something. Now, the headline of the night, of course, is that she wins big and wins with more votes than she did in an open primary for an open seat two years ago. Um, But I think the fact that Mukes did get 40% of the vote suggests that, you know, she's safe for now, but she would be wise to incorporate the criticism of focusing on the 5th District and prioritizing that over national politics. And the money in this race was a very interesting dynamic. And overall, the money, of course, helped Mukes because it allowed him to get his name out there. I mean, he was virtually unknown before this started. And without money, I can't imagine that he would have gotten 40%. On the other hand, the fact that a lot of the money came from Republican groups, conservative groups, really turned off some uh, DFL voters in the fifth who might have been inclined to, you know, think about him otherwise. And so Overall, the money helped him get his message out, but I do think to some extent it was a double-edged sword. There's political science research that shows that congressional candidates do better 
when they raise their own money. In other words, if he had gotten all of that money from small individual contributions from within the district, that money would have helped him more, even if it were the same dollar amount, by generating enthusiasm and people who were telling their neighbors to go vote than the money from PACs. There hasn't been a Republican elected to the 5th District congressional seat since the early 1960s. Omar does have a Republican challenger, Lacey Johnson. Is this still considered an absolutely safe Democratic seat? This is an absolutely safe Democratic seat. Representative Omar won with 78% of the vote in November 2018. So it is an absolutely safe Democratic seat. What other races were you watching during this primary, and did any of the results surprise you? I was watching the 7th District, the Republican primary. Um, the seventh, Unlike the 5th District, the 7th District will be a very competitive seat um, in the general election. Colin Peterson is, has represented the seat since 1991. He is a conservative Democrat. He chairs the House Agriculture Committee. And he has, by and large, fended off high-quality challengers for years um, because of his focus on agriculture and his conservative views on social issues that match the district. But as politics have become more nationalized and more polarized, I think even though many of his views and his focus on agriculture do match the district, the fact that Trump won the district by 30 points in 2016 just means that it's going to be hard for any Democrat to hold on to it um, in 2020 with with Trump at the top of the the ticket. I, I have no doubt that Trump will win the seventh district by large margins again. And so the question is, will voters be willing to split their ticket in the seventh district or will enough voters be willing to vote for Trump and then Peterson? And if not, um, I, I think Think that it'll be tough for Peterson to hang on. And as I said, in general, Peterson has not attracted strong challengers. But in this cycle, former state Senator Michelle Fishbach, who represented part of the district, won her primary decisively. And so I think that that will make it a much more competitive race than Peterson has seen, certainly in his last two cycles, where he's defeated um, Hughes most recently by four points. And so the fact that Fishbach defeated Hughes um, and some other Republicans makes this a very competitive seat in the fall. Senator Tina Smith was appointed to the Senate by Governor Mark Dayton after Al Franken vacated his seat following accusations of sexual harassment. She won the special election in 2018, but is already up for re-election, facing Republican challenger, former Congressman Jason Lewis. What do the polls tell us about this race so far? The polls suggest that this is not one of the most competitive races. Um, Minnesota is increasingly polarized and people increasingly vote party lines. And so that means I think that it will be somewhat competitive. But in nominating Jason Lewis, Republicans chose a candidate who is polarizing. He was polarizing as a representative. He served for two years representing Minnesota's second district um, and then was defeated in 2018. And so you know, an eighth of the district uh, knows him as their former representative, but he's less known to the other seven eighths of the state. And he has he has an extreme record um, as a representative in Congress and to even a greater extent as a talk show host um, with some pretty extreme rhetoric. So I, I don't expect that Smith will win big, given the polarized nature of politics and the fact that people are increasingly likely to vote party lines, Um, but this is not one of the more competitive Senate races across the country. We're talking with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson about the 2020 political campaigns.
President Trump recently visited Minnesota. He believes he will win the state in November. Minnesota holds the nation's longest streak of voting for a Democratic president. What factors would need to coalesce for Trump to win Minnesota? Well, Trump came close in 2016, and I think that that one and a half percentage point margin um, that he lost by is really propelling this strategy of many more visits this time around. Every time he visits, he says that if he had just come one or two more times in 2016, he could have won. Um, Now, if he had come one or two more times in 2016, Democrats probably would have campaigned harder uh, for Clinton as well. Um, But nonetheless, I do think that Minnesota is considered a swing state in 2020 because of the close margin in 2016. And there are many voters um, that are very supportive of President Trump in Minnesota, um, particularly voters in the 1st District, the 7th District, the 8th District, um, and, and of course spread out around the state as well. And so President Trump is hoping to win Minnesota, um, and then he's also hoping to help candidates um, such as the Republican incumbents in the 1st and the 8th District. With many voters fearful of going to the polls due to COVID-19 and many choosing to vote by mail, how strong was voter turnout for the primary? And does it bode well for how our state will turn out in November? Right. Uh, it, it was extraordinarily high for a primary. I mean, uh, highest in, in decades. And there were a lot of ballots that were mailed in, um, absentee ballots, but there were also a lot of people who went to the polls. On the other hand, it's really hard to compare primary turnout to general election turnout. I think primary turnout was around 20%. And typically in a general election, Minnesota votes at rates of over 70%, typically highest in the nation. And so I don't think voters who went in person on primary day were particularly concerned about crowds, but I could see that being a big concern with the general election because just the sheer volume of people who will come out to vote. And so it remains to be seen. It remains to be seen where we are in the pandemic and how many people uh, request and mail in absentee ballots. What does primary turnout look like in other states? Primary turnout across the country really is determined by the level of competitiveness of the race and the timing of the primary. Summer primaries typically actually are low turnout events, but as we saw in Minnesota, uh, with very high turnout for a primary and for a primary that did not involve a presidential race, um, I think the fact that people were not traveling over the summer, people were requesting absentee ballots, and there were two congressional districts with extremely competitive primaries, Republicans in the 7th and Democrats in the fifth really drove up primary turnout. But again, compared to a general election, it's still only a small fraction of what turnout could be. We are in the midst of the national political conventions that in the age of COVID-19 look nothing like the conventions of the past. Does the loss of the in-person energy and the grand spectacle of the conventions potentially have any impact on voter enthusiasm? We'll find out. Before the convention started, um, I expected that that would be the case. There is energy that comes from all of the people gathered in one place, cheering, excited, and then these delegates return to their home states and mobilize other voters and get involved and volunteer. That said, I think voters are seeing 
more information about the candidates, uh, or at least the Democratic candidates so far, and reasons that everyday people support the candidates than they otherwise would. Um, I found the roll call of the states just extremely interesting. Um, the, the different people that were chosen to, to nominate um, Biden, it, it just showed the geographic diversity, the regional diversity, um, the ethnic and racial diversity of, of his support in a way that would not have been captured in a regular convention. Some of the speeches, yes, do seem pre-scripted, they're pre-taped, but I think for many of the speakers, it actually works quite well. Not for all, um, but it, it will be interesting to see if we ever go back to conventions as they used to be. Given the pandemic, social distancing is severely disrupting normal retail politics. How are the two parties campaigning differently during this election cycle? Most Campaigning happens after Labor Day. So to some extent, it remains to be seen. But obviously, large rallies um, are, are problematic. President Trump had one in Tulsa, and COVID spiked in Tulsa after that. And so Democrats have not chosen to have large rallies, but I think that this will affect the ways in which candidates are able to reach out to voters. I mean, we saw uh, former Vice President Biden introduce Kamala Harris as his running mate in front of a very, very small crowd of media only. And so it is different. And it is different in terms of generating that enthusiasm. On the other hand, the vast majority of voters get their information about presidential candidates through the television anyway. And so I think that there will be an even greater impact for congressional candidates, um, state legislative candidates who, you know, want to be door knocking, but aren't really sure, you know, if they can do that safely and, and how much to do that. And if voters would want to talk to them at their door. And so fundraising is still happening online and the candidates are raising money online. And, and again, in some ways, it's even easier to bring people together virtually. But, you know, sometimes people are more willing to pay the big bucks to actually be with the candidates in person. So no doubt there are changes, but both parties and both candidates are really trying to adapt. Catherine Pearson is an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Professor Pearson, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you very much, Jim. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. A century ago this month, women were granted the right to vote in the United States. But the 19th Amendment did not afford all women suffrage, and many women of color were still denied their voting rights. It's been a long and often uphill battle for women to fully participate in the electoral system. Next week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at the ongoing struggle for women to achieve political equity. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.